I think what people don't always realize the value with a lawyer, like we're not just generating contracts or documents. Like that is a part of what we do. It's also guiding people through the transaction. You know, that's where the experience comes in is really taking people from the start of the project to the closing and beyond in a way that hopefully is painless for them, but also so that they're not surprised after the fact. I'm Corey Brown, and this provides the Path to Owning It podcast, where I sit down with trusted industry experts and provides network to give you the tools and advice you need to take your practice ownership dreams into your own hands. From owning your own practice to expanding or improving an existing practice, we'll help pave the way for you to achieve your dental or veterinary career dreams and guide you through all the nuances of the practice ownership journey. Please make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Today, we are here at the Greater New York Dental Meeting in Manhattan and have the pleasure of interviewing YourDentalLawyer.com's founder and practicing attorney, Robert Montgomery III, about the legal side of ownership. Rob has been serving the individual legal and business needs of healthcare clients for over 20 years. Rob has worked over 1,000 dental deals during his career, ranging from practice startups to equity buy-ins and complex practice acquisitions. Rob regularly speaks to audiences across the country and is also the co-founder and co-host of the Dental Amigos podcast. Rob, it's really a pleasure to have you on today. It's great to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me, Corey. We are excited to have you live here at the Greater New York Dental yeah, Meeting. It's Feel fun, good to exciting. be back. Yeah, with people, humans in the room. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Yeah. Well, first off, can you tell us why it's so important to have a lawyer on your team who specializes in the dental industry? Sure. I mean, and it's not just a lawyer. We're talking about CPAs, lenders. I mean, your team generally should be dental focused. And, you know, sometimes I'll see on blogs or Facebook groups, people say, well, what's a dental lawyer? What does a dental lawyer do? And really, it's just like anything. If you have experience doing certain deals, you see different things. And over the course of time, you know, you're able to guide your clients to avoid maybe mistakes that people before them have made. Yeah. And you're leveraging somebody else's network. You know, your trusted advisor has their trusted people that they like to work with. So if somebody says they're working with somebody, a lender or a CPA that we know is not going to be in their best interest, we're going to say, you know, you know, there's some other people you might want to talk to. So it's yeah. just really about coming in and tapping into somebody that can help guide you in the right way. Sure. What are some of those risks that doctors kind of unknowingly assume when they work with a lawyer who doesn't specialize? What does that look like in your experience? Judging from people that come to us after the fact who work yeah. with other people, just surprises come up what happened with the lease, or I didn't know that the landlord could do this, or they haven't delivered the space yet and I signed the lease eight months ago, now what? Or the accounts receivable is not being collected properly and the seller is taking money or, you know, like all these things that could easily be avoided. And I think what people don't always realize the value with a lawyer, like we're not just generating contracts or documents like that is a part of what we do it's also guiding people through the transaction you know or guiding them through the process with the lease review and negotiation in the startup and there's so many other aspects about making sure that liens are taken care of how are the associate agreements being handled are we hiring those associates from the seller do they have non-competes like it's not just cranking out the documents if it's just cranking out the documents you know with technology being what it is now right, Corey, would, <laughs> like ai could do that sure right? You, you sure. don't need a human to do that, but that's where the experience comes in is really taking people from the start of the project to the closing and beyond in a way that hopefully is painless for them, but also so that they're not surprised after the fact 
and look, there are things that come up in any deal. You know, this is not perfect. Owning a business is not a perfect process. 25 years in, I can attest to that myself. But the things that you can control, you need to and mitigate those risks and, and reduce those surprises and you know, leave the, the true surprises to come up. Sure. And let's talk about those kind of like new owners or those just starting, like you had mentioned. So for aspiring practice owners, when is a dental lawyer most needed for them, in your opinion? I think, you know, really from the start, and that really means they're possibly the first contract that they sign as an associate, you know, and helping them to make sure that the restrictive covenants are appropriate, consistent with their goals. You know, if they want to work in, say, they're in Austin, Texas, and they want to own a practice in Austin, Texas, and if they're working in a practice in Austin with a 20-mile non-compete, that's, that's going to be a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, how much notice do they have to give to their employer before they could leave? So if you're purchasing a practice and you have to give your employer 180 days notice, that might be a tricky thing, right? So I think we would like to be involved and meet an entrepreneurial dentist early on to make sure that the table is set with that. And then as they move through their associateship and start networking, meeting people, start assembling their team, you know, brokers, CPAs, lenders, we'd like to be there with them so that when they find that practice, they understand what they need to do. Yeah. They have their people lined up, ready to get involved with the letter of intent, help them with that, help them with the right introductions, and then work and negotiate the documents and get them to closing. Yeah, absolutely. What are some common pitfalls when buying a practice? I know you've seen probably many of them. Can you share some with us? Yeah, a plug to another profession, you know, CPAs and accountants. There's a lot that we can do as lawyers to protect people, you know, and, and that's from a contractual standpoint. But we don't have the power to make a bad deal good. You know, no matter what. Right. You know, and so a lot of that is doing the right due diligence, understanding what the cash flow of the practice is, the projected cash flow, knowing what you're going to be acquiring and what you can expect. Because if you don't work with a CPA to help you with that aspect of the process, whether it's a buy-in or an acquisition, or even you know from a practice owner hiring an associate, bringing on a partner, you can quantify those decisions. You can look at them and say, okay, here's how much I'm going to receive as a seller, and this is how much I can expect to make, or here's how much I'm going to pay to this practice to buy it, or pay to these partners to become partners with them, and this is what I can reasonably expect to make. Because if you don't go through that process with a CPA, and you find out after the fact how much money you're making or not making, then you're really just choosing what's behind door number three, and then hoping that it turns out okay. That's a really big mistake from a due diligence standpoint. It's not legal per se, and it's something that, again, as you asked, Corey, like, why do we like to be involved early? Right. Because we want to make sure that they've taken that step with the right people, because it makes us look good, too. Like, we want good deals for our clients. We want yeah. them to thrive. Of course. Buy more practices and be successful and do you know, additional locations. And uh, a bad deal can really stymie your ability to grow. Absolutely. Tell us about maybe some of the more complex practice acquisition scenarios that you've seen and give us some kind of insight on those. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing more and more deals in the DSO space, obviously. Even our office has gotten more busy recently with that. We were always doing it, but now that aspect of the practice is accelerating. Okay. We still are very much committed to helping people transition into practice ownership, either through startup or acquisition. But, you know, look, we're in this space and we're helping sellers. I think one of the bad trends that we're seeing, and they're complex deals in a way that the clients don't realize the complexity of that. And what I'm referring to are these partnerships, these buy-ins to corporately owned groups 
where a young associate is transitioning, they think, into practice ownership, where they're going to partner with that DSO at a particular location, and they're going to own 20 or 25 or 30 percent of that practice, and they're going to borrow money possibly from the DSO or from a bank to do that. There are a lot of pitfalls with that. You know, what's going to happen when they want to leave? Can they leave? Will they get their money back? They have these restrictive covenants that really bind them to that practice. And so I think some people think that that's a step towards becoming an entrepreneurial dentist. And in a lot of instances... Kind of hinders them sometimes, yeah, it sounds like, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, they yeah. are chaining themselves to that practice. And the economics may not be good because, you know, look, the cost of going through that whole process may be something that they don't want to incur. And I think a lot of people fall into the trap like, well, gee, this is a DSO. Therefore, that means they're going to be successful someday and sell for a lot of money. And therefore, that means that I'm going to make a lot of money. Like there's a few assumptions there that you can't count on. And I think what people also underestimate in those deals are if you own 20% of this practice entity, or you own some small fractional ownership of the overall parent DSO, how and when are you going to sell that equity interest and to who and for how much? And just because those DSOs are selling to bigger groups and doing recapitalizations and they're making money, sometimes those transactions are happening at several levels above where the associate owner, associate partner actually owns. So that just because the parent company and the, and the founders of that parent company and the shareholders and members of that are getting rich, that does not trickle down to the entire organization. So I think overall with that, and kind of goes back to your question from a few minutes ago, yeah. don't make assumptions that just because somebody else did a deal, you're going to do a similar deal. And that, that means that the terms and the structure and the outcome is going to be the same. Everything is different, you know, and you have to understand the details of your particular deal. If someone finds themselves in that position currently, is it too late to get out of it? Or what can they do to proceed in their career as they had intended? I'll say it all depends. You know, it depends what they sign themselves up for. You know, in an owner-operator world, most people don't want a dentist or an associate or a partner working in their office who doesn't want to be there. Right? Because who wants to work with somebody that doesn't right. want to work with you? But if you are like a trickle part- down to patients too, realizing right, exactly. that, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you're in that environment, right? Yeah. You're a dentist, right? And you're working with this partner dentist. But if the person who's actually responsible for dealing with this situation is sitting in an office 1,200 miles away, they really don't care what the vibe is like in the office, right? And whether or not the doctors aren't happy right. working together. Right. the bottom together. line, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so things sometimes can be managed. There may be buyouts that could be negotiated, but it's a lot easier, Corey, to manage that situation before than it is to try to deal with it after the fact. So let's shift to startups. Are the common pitfalls same, different? Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think startups are great. You know, we do a lot of work in the startup space. I think in the startup world, it's even more important to work with a good team and do all the right things. Right. You know, and a lot of people will ask, you know, if I'm doing a webinar or podcast or, you know, I see them on blogs and Facebook groups, what's better, a startup or an acquisition? The age-old question. Right, you know, and the answer is it all depends, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I feel like if you do a good startup and you do it right and well, you can really thrive. And again, there's some assumptions there. That means you're working with the right team, the right realtor, the right consultant. Yeah. You've done the proper demographics. You have the right budget. You're fitting the office out properly. The loan terms are right. You have enough money 
right, to allow you to build out what you need to build out and also have enough money to market. You're working with the right marketing people at the right time. Like you do have to spend money on that, right? But there needs to be a return on that investment. Where I see people get into trouble with startups is where they want to do them on the cheap. You know, and somebody will say like, well, I don't want to spend a lot of money, Rob. I don't want to spend a lot of money on marketing. I don't want to hire that consultant. You know, I, I want to use the equipment rep to help me design my office because it's free, you know? And that's where the trouble comes in. Okay. Ultimately, if this was a contest, which it's not, but let's assume that having the best startup is a contest. Sure. You know, it would be to have the biggest practice that's thriving, that's making the most revenue and making the most profit. There definitely would not be an award for the cheapest startup, you know, because who cares? You know, at the end of the day, just because you didn't spend as much money as somebody, that doesn't put food on the table and that's not driving revenue to the practice. You know, you have to spend money wisely. There needs to be a return on that investment, but you need to spend money to do a startup right. And so comparing a startup to an acquisition, you know, if you can do a startup right, there's no ceiling necessarily. It's your vision. You do it in the way that you want it. It's a new practice. You bring on your patients, the type of people you surround yourself with, the team that you want to surround yourself with. But if you're acquiring a practice, you're buying somebody else's thing. If it's a perfect fit, a perfect match, that can be great. But for all the compromises, or each compromise you make on that acquisition, where you're giving something up just because you're getting cash flow, because you're buying an existing thing, you know, there's a ceiling involved with that. You know? And so the further you get away from a perfect acquisition, you start to get to a point where maybe a startup is a better way to go. That's great advice. Now, depending on whether it's a startup or an acquisition, I know you get this question all the time, but what do you tell people when they ask you if now is a good time to do either? That's an individual decision. Yeah. I think that if anybody is considering acquiring a practice or doing a startup, now is the time to start to investigate. I can say that with full confidence. Sure. You know, start to talk to people, understand what's entailed, start assembling your team, get advice from people, talk to other people that have done it. Don't rely only on your dental community to tell you how to do your startup, your acquisition, <laughs> yeah. right? That's got its own pitfalls. There are very a lot of well-intentioned people out there that are mentors and and running residency programs and other older dentists and family members even, right? They're all very well-intentioned, but that may not be giving the right advice. But start to really avail yourself of all the resources that are out there and understand what it is that you're thinking about doing. And then that puts you into the sort of the arena. If you get a taste of that and you're excited and the right opportunity comes along, yeah. then you're ready to jump on it and take advantage of it. Rob, we've talked a lot about why it's important to have an industry-specific lawyer on your team, but when we come back, I'd like to specifically talk about the types of business entity structures, which one's best, and get more into the legal side of ownership. More with Rob Montgomery after this short break. Meet the newest reason to finance your dream practice with Provide. The Provide Card, the credit card built specifically for dental and veterinary practice owners. Available in addition to your Provide practice loan, with the Provide Card, you'll be transported to a world of new opportunities for your practice, where you can securely make bulk supply orders and earn tailored rewards on your purchases. You can earn up to 3% rewards on healthcare practice and lab supplies, and 1% rewards on all other purchases all the time, with no rotating categories and no point expiration. At Provide, we're creating the future of personalized banking for healthcare practice owners. To learn how to apply for your tailored card with tailored benefits, Contact your Provide representative or visit getprovide.com slash provide card for more information, including rewards terms and conditions. 
I'm Corey Brown, and this is Provides the Path to Owning It podcast. We're back with Rob Montgomery to talk more about the legal side of dental practice ownership. Rob, to start, what would you say is the most popular type of business entity structure? Most people are forming limited liability companies, Corey, LLCs or professional limited liability companies, PLLCs for their practice. That designation and which kind of varies from state to state as to which is which, but that's 99% probably of the entities that we see and we form for our clients. There are some additional steps that require some accounting and and tax planning Mm -hmm. as to how to treat that LLC. So if it's a single member LLC, it's what's known as a disregarded entity, which means that the income and the losses would be reported on a personal tax return, a Schedule C. Okay. Or some accountants may want their clients to elect to be taxed like a corporation and then as an S corporation. And so then that would be a separate tax return where they would receive a K-1 and the profit would still flow through them from a tax standpoint, but it's just a little different. If it's a partnership, a multi-member LLC, the default for that would be to be taxed like a partnership, but they could also elect to be taxed like an S corp too. So okay. that becomes for us, you know, we usually just do the LLC. It just makes and sense. And we say, right? this is your LLC. Now, these are the three questions you need to ask your CPA to help you about with next steps. So you mentioned partnerships. If you're looking to partner, what are some things to consider? Yeah, I think that there needs to be really synergy between the partners and there needs to be a good reason to become partners. The fact that you were friends in dental school to me isn't really a convincing. Not a great reason. No. <laughs> yeah, and partnerships are probably the number one way to kill a friendship or to put strain on a family relationship too. So there needs to be some reason that they're complementary, that one partner adds something and can do something maybe from a procedure standpoint or a management standpoint that makes sense. And the other thing to keep in mind is if you are partnering and, and acquiring a practice, does the practice support two dentists as a partner? I think sometimes people get lulled into this false sense of security that, well, it's a cheaper practice and therefore it's less risky. Well, especially with partnerships, a cheaper practice means there's less profit and that means you have to split the profit between two people. Yeah. I don't consider that to be less risky. I I think that that's more risky. So really needs to be the economics need to make sense. Again, coming back to what we talked about before, what does the cash flow look like to each of the partners? Yeah. Is that something they could be happy with? Because as we know, money is pretty much the fuel for most relationship disputes, yeah. business, personal, marriages. So you really want to make sure that you're stepping into something that's realistic and feasible before you do it. Yeah. And other than being you know, friends in dental school, what are some common pitfalls that you would find with partnerships? I think we're we see a kind of fiscal differences in, in like how to spend money, you know, where one partner wants to throw a $20,000 holiday party and the other partner wants to buy supplies at Costco. Nothing is wrong with either of those people. Sure. They probably shouldn't be partners though, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a big thing. The other thing is from a tax planning standpoint where one partner wants to be aggressive and setting up their tax structure and dealing with expenses where the other partner wants to be more conservative. These are things that are just hard to reconcile. Let's talk about startups and partnerships. Are there any special considerations there? I think that they need to be really scrutinized even more carefully than an acquisition, just because the time period when you're starting from scratch is going to be that much longer until you're able to feed two mouths. And when the practice is so small, it's not like there's so much administrative work to do that you need two people to do it. And I think you just need to be careful about that. When have you seen that work successfully? We do see it. You know, same thing where... The partners obviously have associateships that allow them to have a longer 
runtime, or maybe their partners, it's an orthopedo startup where you know they have that kind of synergy where they can feed business to each other. And it also depends on what market you're in and how good the opportunity is. And if you're doing a startup in a place that is very much underserved and has great demographics and it's a matter of hanging out a shingle, then you probably get to that two-person critical mass pretty quickly. Yeah go into a market that's very competitive with your startup and now try to generate enough revenue and income for two people there, uh, that could be tricky. If a provider owns their real estate or the building, should that commercial real estate be treated any differently than the practice as far as ownership? From a partnership standpoint or like an entity yeah, formation? Yeah, as an entity, I guess, and a partnership. To me, I generally recommend to people that if they're gonna be partners in one, they should be partners in both because there are advantages from a tax standpoint to expense certain things certain ways in one entity versus the other. I'm getting way out of my lane here, right? <laughs> but there are things though that might be positive for the left pocket that are not positive for the right pocket. So if you're not really involved in both of those, that could be problematic. I think also down the road from a buyout or transition standpoint, you know, if you have partners that are, have different interests that are on unequal footing in the practice and how we're going to transition the real estate and how that relates to the practice, you start to create this weird situation where, again, something might be good for one and not good for the other. And any relationship where there's a winner and a loser is pretty much destined to fail. And I would assume that would be the same for leasing the practice rather than ownership, or would that be different? No, I mean, with a lease, you know, you're both going to end up personally guaranteeing the lease and the loan. So in that situation, you know, both partners are kind of in it together, you know, and so if there's a dispute or not getting along, and if you both personally guaranteed a $700,000 loan, then there's a little incentive there to try to fix that because, you know, the bank doesn't really say like, oh, I'm sorry, you guys couldn't get along. We'll just let one of you out and release you from the personal guarantee, you know, especially before the practice is really up and thriving. So that's sort of mutual annihilation kind of thing hanging over here that we both are personally responsible for that kind of keeps the relationship a little stickier perhaps and may incentivize people to work things out where otherwise they might be able to just walk out the back door. Any last thoughts or any kind of one piece of advice that you would give an aspiring owner to think about when it comes to the legal side of ownership? I just think it's good to really work with people who are looking out for your best interest and realizing as you're assembling your team what their respective fiduciary roles are and making sure that they stay in their lanes. You know, you hire your CPA to help you with the financial aspect of the deal. Hire the lawyer to help you with a legal document standpoint of the deal and the negotiation. Realize that practice brokers, what their role is, is to facilitate a deal. It's not to give you advice on the sale of your practice necessarily. You know, they can tell you what the market may look like and how deals are structured, but you know, ultimately they have their own interest. And so none of this is wrong. The, all these people are fine, but see it for what it is and you know, work with the people that are really out there to help you thrive and transition the practice and do what you're looking to do in the future. How would you recommend that one go about finding the right dental lawyer specifically for them and their needs? Um, well, there's a great website, Corey. <laughs> oh, yeah? What's that? It's yourdentallawyer.com. <laughs> Perfect. You know, I think to talk to other people in your market yeah. and see what their experiences were, talk to the person that you're working with for financing, talk to your CPA, try to avoid referrals from people that may have an incentive 
to refer you to somebody who's going to rubber advice. stamp a deal, mm-hmm. right? You know, there are some DSOs that we see that send out an LOI and then they have a list of the lawyers that you should contact. And amazingly, I've had to have conversations with some dental clients over the years to tell them how bad that is, right? Like, yeah. You don't want to work with their preferred lawyer, right? That, and network lawyer. Exactly, right? <laughs> right? That's not a good thing for you. And so really just to be careful about that, but really to vet and to talk to the people that are in your trusted network. And you know, this is not about finding the cheapest lawyer. And it's also not about finding the most expensive lawyer either. It's really finding somebody that understands the space, knows the deals, and is going to bill you fairly. And a lot of times people kind of fall for, I think, you know, the flat fee engagements because they feel like they're secure, that they know that the price is not going to see that. We see a lot of pitfalls with that, you know, and that's not just me giving self-serving advice with that, that, you know, a lot of times when people are on flat fee arrangements, they, you know, every minute they do, their kind of their realization is is going down. And so that's a little bit of a common misconception. You know, you want your lawyer to do what needs to be done and no more, no less. And if you don't trust them to bill you fairly, well, then that's a different thing. You should find another lawyer. That's great advice. And in all seriousness, if our audience wants to work with you, is yourdinnerlawyer.com the best place for them to go? It is. Yeah. There's a, uh, a portal there and you could submit questions and give us a little bit of background about what you're looking to do, who the parties are, so we can run a conflict check and where you're located. And then someone from my team gets back to people usually within a day, yeah. usually within an hour even. And <laughs> then uh, you know, we see if it makes sense, if it's a good fit for us to get involved. Awesome. And if the audience would like to check out your podcast, The Dental Amigos, where can they find it? Yeah, all the usual podcast places, Apple and Google. It's thedentalamigos.com. We have a website, but you know that's probably not the easiest way to consume a, uh, a podcast. So <laughs> all the usual podcast places. Awesome. Well, Rob, thank you so much for talking us through the ins and outs of legal side of ownership. We really appreciate your time and your expertise, and thank you for sharing that with us. Great. Thanks for having me, Corey. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Path to Owning It. If you're ready to take your practice ownership dreams into your own hands, be sure to visit getprovide.com to pre-qualify and browse our practice marketplace, or check out our news page for more helpful resources. The Path to Owning It is brought to you by the team at Provide, with production assistance from Sarah Parkey. And it's produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Producer Dusty Weiss, editor Larry Kilgore III. For Provide, I'm Corey Brown. Thanks for being on the journey with us. Provide is a division of Fifth Third Bank National Association. All opinions expressed by the participants are solely their current opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Provide, its affiliates, or Fifth Third Bank. The participants' opinions are based on information they consider reliable, but neither Provide, its affiliates, nor Fifth Third Bank warrant its completeness or accuracy and should not be relied upon as such. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute the rendering of legal accounting tax or investment advice or other professional services by Provide or any of its affiliates. Please consult with appropriate professionals related to your individual circumstances. All lending is subject to review and approval.